Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me now by turning to the book of Mark, chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, and this morning we're studying verses 7 to 19. Our message this morning is titled, The Beginning of Something Great. Well, now that we're in the month of March, we are finally in the month of madness. March Madness refers to the college basketball tournament involving the best 64 teams from across the country who will compete to win the national championship in just a few short weeks. Now, if you watch the tournament, you recognize that the game of basketball is not only a popular sport in America, but that this tournament is a well-oiled machine. There's loads of money involved, there's lots of travel required by the teams, and there's tons of fanfare. But sometimes, when we watch the finished product from a tournament like this, we can fail to remember its humble beginnings. For example, because of the explosion of basketball's success in our country, we might not be aware of what it looked like in the beginning, when it all got started. In 1891, a long, long time ago, a guy named James Naismith was a lecturer of physical education. So if you have a physical education degree and you feel bad about getting that, hey, this is your moment to shine. You're like, hey, that was a good idea to get a physical education degree. James Naismith was a lecturer of physical education at a university in the Northeast, somewhere around the North England area, which faced harsh winters and severe conditions. And because of these conditions, Naismith had been tasked with an assignment to invent a new sport that could take place during the harsh winters, that was in the off-season of football, could take place during the harsh winters, an opportunity for these young men in this college environment to burn off the excess energy that they now had because football was no longer in session. And so he dreams up the game of basketball. Unable to find any wooden boxes for Naismith, a janitor brought him two peach baskets, and those two, those, those two peach baskets were fashioned to the lower balcony rail in the gymnasium where he taught school. And there on the balcony was waiting two individuals at both ends of the court or the, the gym at that time, and they would wait patiently for someone to make a basket, reach into the peach basket, pull the basketball back out, and throw it back in to play. In fact, it wasn't for another three years that someone thought, this would be a good idea to cut the bottom out of the bottom of these peach baskets so that the ball would fall straight through. Oh, man, there's hope for us yet. There's hope for us yet if you have any ideas that just feel a little bit weird. There's no three-point line in 1891 with the game of basketball. There's no backboard to the peach baskets. There's not even slam dunks at this time. 
But in the winter of 1891, the beginning of something great was born. When you come to church on Sunday mornings, do you ever think how all this got started? Not this local church in particular. I'll tell you that story. You know that. I'll tell you that story every time I get a chance. No, how all this got started, how churches got started, how, how it got started for God's people to gather together. Do you ever consider the humble beginnings of the local church? Well, in our text this morning, we're going to travel back in time, way past 1891, all the way to the first century, and we're going to watch the beginning of something great. We're not going to find a sound system. We're not going to find a church building. We're not going to find a discussion about church budgets. But here, in the power of simplicity, we will find the beginning of the greatest institution in the history of mankind. The beginning of the local we study this text, the Lord will teach us how Jesus loves to use the church to advance his mission. Are you all in with Jesus by being all in with this church? Listen, contrary to popular opinion, Christian mission is not primarily about individual Christians, but about corporate Christians. Jesus multiplied himself into a small group of people who then multiplied themselves into another group of people who then multiplied themselves into another group of people, and here we are. (laughs) And here we are. Jesus came to establish the church to be, listen, highlight this word, The primary means by which he would advance his mission on earth. Not the nuclear family. Not the seminary. Not the parachurch organization. Jesus came to build the local church for the advancement of the gospel. And in our text this morning, we're going to witness the beginning of Jesus' great plan to advance his mission. So if you would now, turn your attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message. And it's the reading of God's holy word. Starting in Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. 
And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name of of Bonerges, that is, the son of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him for his help as we seek to study his word and apply his word. Father, we love you and we love your word. And we just ask that you please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning is the riskiness of church community, verses 7 to 12. And we live in a day where it seems that everyone has some degree of what is commonly known as church hurt. And without minimizing the legitimate cases of pain and disappointment that some have undoubtedly felt through their experiences, what we're going to learn through this first point is that being a part of the local church is risky business, but worthy business. It's risky business because people are involved, but it's worthy business because God is in it. At this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus has just healed a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the religious leaders are beside themselves. In fact, as we concluded last week's study, it says that they had gone out of that place and grouped up with the Herodians, that is the group of Herod's court, and now they're, they're discussing together about how they might kill Jesus. They view him as a threat. He certainly threatens to come against their pride, and so they want to take him out. And because of this, Mark tells us in verse 7 that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. Listen, it's not time for Jesus to go to the cross yet. He's got things that he needs to fulfill, prophecies that he needs to fulfill, things that he needs to transfer to the apostles because they're going to lay the foundation of the church. It's not time for him to go to the cross yet. So he leaves the scene of these angry religious leaders and he takes his disciples to the sea. But along with them, along with the twelve and Jesus comes a whole host of people from all across the map. There were Jewish people from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem that were following him. But listen, there were also Gentiles from Tyre and Sidon who were accompanying him in this 
group. In case you're unfamiliar with this term that I just used, a Gentile. A Gentile is a person who was considered anyone not born a Jew. That is someone who by birthright was born outside of the covenant people of God. In the Old Testament, there were two groups of people. Largely speaking, two groups of people. There were the Jews and the Gentiles. There were the covenant people of God and those who were not the covenant people of God. And Jews and Gentiles did not mix and mingle, especially when it came to religious convictions. But here we find a mixed company of people following Jesus. A mixed company of people. A group made up of both Jews and Gentiles. This group together is following Jesus. Friends, it cannot be overstated how radical this is. This little detail that we come across in Mark chapter 3, how radical this is. But this is... A glimpse of where the gospel was going to go to. This is a glimpse of the fact that Jesus' gospel was not going to be for simply one ethnicity and one nationality, but it was going to be good news for the entire world. No matter your skin tone, no matter your language, no matter your ethnicity. Jesus' gospel is going to be really good news for you. So many people are following Jesus in this group. Jesus tells his disciples in verse 9 to have a boat ready for him, lest the crowds crush him. You can think of the boat at the edge of the sea sort of like Jesus' escape car. Something that the door's already open in, and in case things get hostile, he can just get right in, and someone can hit the gas and get out of there. This boat, he's asking his disciples, have the boat ready. Listen, because there's so many people, the crowd is, there's so many people in the crowd that they could crush him. Now listen, the language that Mark uses in this passage is meant to give us a picture of a mob. A mob of people pressing in on Jesus, falling on top of Jesus. Contrary to the pictures that you've seen of Jesus, sweet pictures of Jesus by the edge of the sea with all the people sitting at his feet, serene, calm, peaceful moment. This is the opposite of that. These people are needy, they are hurting. They're desperate, and they're, Mark uses the language so that we see it, they're pressing hard against Jesus. If we wanted to analyze the motives of the group in Mark chapter 3, we might come up with a word like selfish to describe their actions at this point. There's no indication given to us, and that is intentional on Mark's part. There's no indication given to us that these people are following Jesus because of his unique identity as the Savior of the world. They're not following him for that reason. They're following Jesus because of what they want, of what they can get out of being a part of the group, of what they see Jesus as having the possibility of giving them. 
of how they, of how Jesus can help them. I'm struck by this picture. I hope you see it in your mind. I hope you see this imagery in your mind, the mob pressing in, people following him for the wrong reasons, following him because of what they can get, how he can help them. But I am struck by this picture because it shows me two things. It shows me something about humanity, and it shows me something about Jesus. The heart of humanity is the first thing it shows me. The heart of humanity demands what it wants, no matter the cost. Listen, Jesus could be injured by this mob. That's why he's setting up the escape plan. That's why he's setting the boat there. He could be injured by this mob. You've seen the news. People are killed by mobs. He could be killed by this mob. He could be trampled. But these people don't seem to care about that at all. Yet, the second thing I see is Jesus' heart. At the same time that you see the heart of humanity on gross display, you see the heart of Christ on glorious display. Though he's in danger, listen, a parallel account of this story in Matthew chapter 12 tells us that he healed them all. Don't let that just fall on you and pass you by. He healed them all. He's not obligated to do that. He doesn't have to do that. He has every right to leave the scene. He's trying to get away from the religious leaders who are plotting to kill him. He has every right to get in that boat, especially given the fact that they are pressing against him. His life is in danger. Matthew 12 tells us that he stays and heals. The language is heals them all. Why am I struck by this picture of Jesus in Matthew 12? Well, because it's a beautiful picture of his heart. But secondly, more pertinent to this message, is because it is a picture of how Jesus calls us as the church to live our lives as well. The riskiness of church community. Jesus opened up his heart to the needy and was taken advantage of. He was injured. He was threatened. He was underappreciated. Yet, he healed them all. My temptation, we'll see if you can relate with this one. My temptation after lowering my guard and being taken advantage of is to protect myself. Jesus' instinct is to continue to care for people without becoming cynical and skeptical. How inspiring. (laughs) How convicting. And look at this last observation in this section. While the crowds are falling on Jesus... Mark tells us that the demons fall before Jesus, verses 11 and 12. This isn't the first time we've seen Mark use that language, is it? Remember back in chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, 
he shows us the exact same thing. The crowds are sort of walking with Jesus, looking at him with a degree of, 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 of amazement, excitement, pressing in on him. All the while, the demons are falling before him, recognizing his unique identity as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world. Not their Savior, but nonetheless the Savior of the world. What does this teach us? Why are the demons doing what I ought to be doing? Well, here's what it teaches us. By nature, we are so spiritually dead that we cannot see the glory of the Son of God who's standing right before our eyes. We can go to church every single Sunday of our lives. We can be in a place where the presence of God is there. We can be in a prayer meeting where he falls in power and Christ is lifted up high in people's eyes, the eyes of their heart, and they see him afresh and they're crying because they're sensing their sin, their need for his forgiveness, and, and at the exact same time, feeling the balm of his grace and his mercy and his kindness towards the worst of us, be in that company and not sense it, not feel it, not know it, not taste it. We could come here every single week and sing the songs that describe the gospel in detail. We could come here every week where there's a prayer prayed, where the gospel is soaked, saturated, drenched. We could come here every week where the gospel is heralded, crying out, and you think, man, he's passionate, and I have none of that. We could come here for every week of the rest of our lives and not see his glory. Why? Because by nature... We are so spiritually dead that we cannot see the glory of the Son of God who's standing right in front of us. Feet from them is standing the Messiah, the Son of God, who has eternally existed as the second person of the blessed Trinity, and they don't fall before him. Why? Because their nature is like ours before regeneration. Dead. Spiritually dead. Alive to the world. Alive to materialism. Alive to idolatry. Alive to self-love. Alive to selfishness. Dead to Christ. Dead to what he says is my will. Dead to what he says this will glorify me. Dead to want to follow him. By nature, this is how we see Jesus. We see him as someone who can help us. We see him as someone who can make our life a little better. But the demons, what do they do? Mark tells us when they see him, they fall down. James says it like this, the demons shudder. They fall down and cry out, you are the son of God. Okay. We've got a problem by nature then, right? What do we do? 
How will these crowds ever rightly identify Jesus? How will they ever see their great need for him? How will you ever rightly identify Jesus and see your great need for him? This only happens when he calls his people to himself. Those whom he desires. And that's exactly what we're going to see in this next point. As we witness Jesus separating the crowd and calling to himself a people for his purposes. It's our second point, the mission of the church. Verses 13 to 15. Oftentimes, when we think about the mission of the church, our mind goes to the brave souls who have enlisted themselves into his service. Those who are on the front lines, we, our mind goes to those brave souls who have enlisted themselves into his service. Instead of Uncle Sam pointing his finger in our face, we imagine an image that says, Jesus wants you. Is that how this works? Is Jesus just sort of waiting around in heaven? Sort of just waiting around, hoping that the marketing strategies of the church, the evangelism campaigns of the church are successful so that more people will enlist to serve him? Well, that's not how Mark describes it. I think that's how much of America thinks it happens. But here, once again, we find the friction of the Bible meeting our culture. What does Mark say? How does he describe Jesus enlisting people into his service? Is he just sort of sitting in the recruiting office, excited that someone opens the door, the bell goes off? Oh, yeah, someone's here. Hurry, hurry, hurry. Look at our incentives. Look at the incentives. You have a blessed life. You'll have more money in your pocket. You might have health. No, he's not sitting at a recruiting desk waiting for that door to open. What does he do? Well, look at Mark. Look what he says in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. If this is not your picture of Jesus, I want to encourage you to make this your picture of Jesus. Here he is in Mark's gospel, calling these men to himself. And his call is two things. It is certain and it is irresistible. It is certain and it is irresistible. He called those whom he desired and they came to him. Tell me if that sounds like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why did Jesus call these men? Did they possess a potential that the rest of the crowd didn't? 
you come to that conclusion, you're reading into the text, not letting the text read into you. Why did he choose these 12 men? Well, these 12 men are going to play a very unique role in redemptive history. They were, they were going to be apostles. Men whom Jesus was going to use to lay the foundation of the church. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In our text we see the blueprint of what the foundation of the church is eventually going to look like. We see in verse 14 that the mission of the church will involve at least these three elements. Prayer, preaching, and mercy. Let me show you each of these. The first is we see the element of prayer, as Mark says in verse 16. And he appointed 12 so they might be with him. Oh man, I love that language. So that they might be with him. Man, long before we go out for him, the church must learn the importance of being with him. Long before we go out for him, the church has to learn the importance of being with Christ. The church is not an organization that exists like a bunch of independent contractors. The church is like a human body that is dependent on the head, which is Christ. The hand, the foot, the arm, the eye. Those things only move when the head, when the brain tells them to move. Prayer will become one of the most fundamental and foundational elements of the church. In fact, in the book of Acts, which is a history of the beginning of the church, there are so many references to the church praying, to a, a, a vibrant, healthy prayer life in the church. For example, in Acts Chapter 1, verse 14, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Acts chapter 6, verse 4, it says that they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, it says that the church prayed for Peter while he was in prison. In Acts 16, 13, Acts 16, 16, it says that they were there were actually dedicated places of prayer that the church would go to. Reading the book of Acts is to see a church committed to prayer. Not a church with a bunch of independent contractors trying their hardest to fulfill the mission of Christ in the first century. It's not at all what they're doing. The book of Acts is a history of the Holy Spirit building Christ's church through the weak, feeble efforts of people. And how is he doing that? He's doing that through prayer. He's doing that through prayer. All through Acts is a church committed to prayer. Living hope. May we always be a church committed to prayer. In fact, may our already well-attended prayer meetings become the most well-attended meetings 
outside of the Sunday gathering in the life of this church. May our prayer meetings become the most well-attended meetings outside the life of Sunday morning in the life of our church. So with that, let me give you a plug. Could we wreck Mike and Teresa's house this Sunday? All of us show up for the prayer meeting. Just shock them. There's no places to park. Let's park in the grass. Let's park in, let's get cars towed. That's how we know that we're a church committed to prayer. The first car that's towed wins the award of expecting to receive glory in heaven. Second, we see the element of preaching, as Mark says in verse 14. He appointed 12 so that he might send them out to preach. Foundational to the mission of the church is the priority of preaching. We've already witnessed this. You've heard me reference this several times in Mark's gospel. Jesus is committed to preaching. Everywhere that he goes, it's the first thing that he does. Is he goes into the synagogue and he preaches. And after that, he's ushering in the kingdom through his preaching ministry. And then he starts healing. Starts doing remarkable things, casting out demons and healing. But, but every place that he goes, the first thing he does is preach. Now we see he's transferring that conviction to the apostles. Those who will become the foundation of the church. Listen, in the book of Acts, there are at least 16 references to the church preaching. They got it. They got it. Jesus transferred that conviction and it wasn't lost on them. They didn't start taking up the social gospel as the primary purpose of their gathering. They didn't take up healing ministry as the primary purpose of their gathering. They didn't take the spiritual gifts as the primary purpose of their gathering. They, they felt the conviction that Jesus spoke with, that preaching, you want the mission to move? Preach. Preach. Be a church that preaches the gospel. Be a people that proclaim the gospel. Be a people. Speak with words. The gospel is a, is a message of words. So they got it. But why is preaching so important to the life of the church? Well, listen, the reason that preaching is so important to the mission of the church is because it is the Word of God that sustains, that creates, that protects, that guards, listen, and that even governs the life of the church. Catholics have traditionally erred in this way. They'll say that the church created the Bible. That is not true. Listen. It is the Bible that created the church. It's the Bible that creates the church. It's the word of God that creates the church. You take out the word, you take out the church. It is the word that protects, guides, governs the church. Third, we see the element of mercy, as Mark says in verse 15. He appointed 12 that, that day that they might have authority to cast out demons. 
fundamental to the mission of the church is the reality of how the gospel infiltrates a community and offers hope to people shackled by sin and bound by Satan. Again, throughout the book of Acts, we see at least 10 examples of how when the gospel moved forward throughout the unreached world, people were healed and demons were exercised. In other words, people's lives were transformed. Jesus' mercy to those bound by sin and possessed by demons did not stop at the cross. It continues even through the church age. Continues even into this age that we're living in. And it leads to our third point this morning the motley church crew. Verses 16 to 19. Why are so many of us encouraged by the fact that these were the 12 people that Jesus chose to be his apostles? <laughs> Why are we so encouraged that he chose these guys to be the foundation of the church? Could it be because these guys feel so normal? These guys feel so ordinary to us? Whenever we read a book or watch a movie about special operations, don't we expect to find people who are so specialized in their skill set that they feel like they're from another world? They're otherworldly. They're something, they're doing something that I could never do. They're performing some sort of activity that I could never even think of. The CrossFit games are going on right now. I think about the CrossFit Open. And this might land on you as an illustration that makes sense, but there's a guy named Matt Frazier who's now retired, but he dominated the scene special ops situation, right? He has a skill set that you watch and you go, that's really cool. I could never do that. And you're right. <laughs> you're right. And if you think that you are, we'll lay hands on you and pray for the Lord's mercy to give you a sense in your mind. But not these guys. These 12 apostles feel strikingly similar to us, don't they? I mean, they feel like guys that we can hang out with. Look at Simon, verse 16, to whom Jesus gave the name Peter. Who is he? Well, you know who he is. He's not a VIP. He's not a, he's not a president of an organization. He's not a billionaire. He's a fisherman. He's a fisherman. Oh, gasp. Sigh of relief. And as we will see throughout Mark's gospel, Peter oftentimes has really great intentions, but very poor ex execution and the delivery of his words. How many times does Peter get re rebuked in the New Testament? Countless times. How many times have I been rebuked? countless times <laughs> but nevertheless this is the man that Jesus is going to use this is the man that whom he says you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church does anyone see themselves in Peter's life does anyone see themselves in Peter's failures 
good. See yourself in his successes as well. Peter has loads of successes. See yourself in his failures. See yourself in his successes as well. Look at James and John, verse 17. What name did Jesus give them? Peter got the rock. What name did they get? (laughs) They got sons of thunder. Man, this is where Thor got his name. Listen, these guys are the sons of thunder. These two fishermen have loads of ambition. But it needs to be redeemed. (laughs) At one point, you might remember this story. At one point, their mother... You think, man, this reminds me of college athletics. Their mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, I have a request for my boys. You can see Jesus say, oh, let me hear that. Here's what I want for my boys. When you get into glory, I want one of my boys to sit at your right hand, right hand, and one of my boys to sit at your left hand. (laughs) And then when Jesus says, turns to them and says, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink, which means... Can you be the savior of the world? Can you drink in the wrath of God that I'm going to drink in and die as a substitute on behalf of the sinners of the world? Can you do that? You know what they say? Yep. <laughs> yep. Yep. We, we, uh, we don't really know what that means by the cup thing, but we can do it. <laughs> they, they have so much self-confidence. That they're arrogant. But despite all of their flaws, Jesus uses them. Jesus redeems them. He restores their selfish ambition and he guides it so that it becomes ambition that they use for the glory of God and not for themselves. Look at the rest of the list of these guys. Verse 18. Who are these other guys? Well, Andrew was a fisherman. Matthew was a tax collector, which means that he had a job that the current day hated. He had an occupation that people despised. Thomas is known as a doubter. Simon was called a zealot. And of course, Judas Iscariot, the man who who will be responsible for handing Jesus over to his death. These are the men that Jesus chose to advance the gospel. Strikingly ordinary people. Man, how could they do this job? Well, it was because this was never about them. The mission of the church, biblically speaking, does not rest on their shoulders, but it rests on Jesus' shoulders. So friends, maybe you're like Peter, constantly putting your foot in your mouth. You're constantly messing up. You're constantly saying this line to yourself, shouldn't I be further along? Shouldn't I not be struggling with this? much as I am. Maybe you're like Peter. Maybe you're like Matthew, 
who has a disgraceful past, you look back over your shoulder and you tuck your head in shame. Maybe you're like James and John who have who had loads of selfish ambition. You feel of yourself, I'm very driven. Very driven. But I do everything for myself. I'm a very selfish person. Maybe you're like Thomas, who's called a doubter. Despite all the great things that you've seen, Jesus do, and you still think he couldn't do it again. Maybe you're one of those, like one of those people. If you are, let me ask you a question. Can Jesus use you? Well, listen. Look no further to find your answer than in the example of these 12 men found in this text. Of course he can use you. Of course he can use you. Let it be silence forevermore. Of course he can use you. And listen, he's not going to leave you where you are. He's not going to leave you where he found you. Matthew didn't stay a tax collector. He didn't stay an occupation that took advantage of his people. Peter (laughs) stuck his foot in his mouth less (laughs) as he got older. Listen. He's not going to leave you where he found you. If you commit yourself to Jesus entirely, he's going to make something so beautiful from the broken pieces of your life. He's going to make something more beautiful from the broken pieces of your life than you could have ever made for yourself with a perfect picture, a white picket fence, a house and family with three kids and the American dream and Mercedes out front and an Audi. No, he's he's going to make you trust yourselves to him entirely? He's going to make something more beautiful from the broken pieces of your life than what any culture and community could have ever dreamed up as the perfect picture of life. Jesus is not handicapped by our hang-ups. He's a redeemer. He's a restorer. Listen, he's a recreator. When we come to Christ, he makes us a new creation. Yet, as we've talked about throughout this message, Jesus' mission involves the corporate witness of the church, not just individual Christians. So, friend... Maybe the way that you need to respond this morning is to embrace Christ by re-embracing this local church. As Ray Ortland says, if your relationship with your church is ambiguous and sporadic and subject to convenience, the problem is not your relationship with your church. The problem is your relationship with Christ. He has made his loyalty clear. He even delights in his church. He is committed to the revival of the world through the revival of the church. To God, the most important thing in all of created reality is his church. A crown of beauty in his hand. 
But friend, where is your loyalty? Where is your priority? Listen, let's commit afresh to be a community, to be a church community, to be a people whose loyalty and priority is his church and its good. For Jesus loves to use the church to advance his mission. Are you all in with Jesus by being all in with this church? Let's pray. Father, we adore you. We thank you that you've given us the church. What a messy group we are, Lord. What a messed up group we are. I thank you that you commit to us not because of our potential or because of what we possess or because of who we could become. You commit to us because you commit to us. The ultimate reality is that you commit to us because you love us. It's your decision. Thank you, Lord. Keep us, sanctify us, grow us, mature us. Make us the most attractive, light-glowing, glorious people in all of the world. You can do that. In Jesus' name, amen.